0: Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Jim Langevin is the first quadriplegic to serve in Congress. He was 16 years old with hopes of becoming a police officer when a stray bullet changed his life forever.
1: I was never angry, um, frustrated maybe, you know, and certainly sort of sad and disappointed at the loss. I've often described it as like going through a death and a life that I knew before that I'd never know again.
2: A recent survey at Rhode Island College found 33% of students don't know where their next meal will come from. Joyce Garzon is focused on finding a solution because she used to be one of them.
3: There were times where I was sitting in class trying to decide, I have $5, what do I do? Do I pump gas so that I have enough gas to go pick up my brother when I get out of classes? Or do I buy a snack because I'm super hungry and I'm sure everybody can hear my stomach grumbling?
2: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts.
0: I'm Michelle San Miguel. We begin tonight with a conversation with Congressman Jim Langevin. He made history as the first quadriplegic to serve in Congress. During his 11 terms in the U.S. House, he's earned a reputation as someone who puts people over politics. The Congressman has also become a nationwide leader on issues of disability rights and cybersecurity. A former cyber diplomat in the Obama administration described Langevin as a cyber guy before it was cool. He didn't always have his eyes set on politics, but a gun accident as a teenager severed his spinal cord and as he says, forced him to dream a new dream. Just last year, Congressman Langevin said he planned to run for office this year, but in a move that surprised many, he announced in mid-January that he would not seek another term. We recently sat down with Langevin to talk about his life, his career, and why he decided not to run again.
1: Well, it didn't just come overnight. I'd been thinking about it for several months, determining, you know, uh, what I want for my future and how long uh, did I want to continue to serve. It's been the honor and a privilege of a lifetime to have been the congressman from the 2nd District for... Uh, over 20 years now going on 22 years but you know there does come a time where you, you reflect uh, how much longer will I continue to do this and it, it just it came to the conclusion after weighing everything that I did want something with a better work-life balance and something that, uh, that didn't if I'm getting on an airplane every week going to uh, going to work in DC.
0: Congressman Jim Langevin has been in public office since the mid-80s. In 1994, when he was just 30 years old, he became the youngest secretary of state in the country. But after more than three decades in elected office, the self-described policy wonk is leaving politics, at least for now. Did the current political climate weigh in on the decision? I mean, you were there last year during the insurrection. You weren't on the House floor, but you were in your office when that happened.
1: It really was a factor that was one of the many things that made me reevaluate both the job and life itself.
0: The 57-year-old Democrat says the political climate has changed since he first ran for office. So, too, have the threats faced by the country.
1: On September 11, 2001, I was a freshman in Congress we suffered attacks that day because of a failure of imagination.
0: Several years after Langevin began serving in the House of Representatives, he says he realized the growing threat that cyber attacks posed to national security.
1: I could, you know, envision a potential major cyber attack say in the dead of winter, where a whole sector of the country's electric grid could be brought down, not just for days or you know weeks, but potentially for for months. You're talking about not only catastrophic economic loss, but Loss of life. I said it before and I'll say it again. Cybersecurity is the national and economic security challenge of the 21st century.
0: As a member of the House Homeland Security Committee, Langevin has become a trusted voice on cybersecurity issues, helping establish cyber offices in the White House and the Department of Homeland Security. He's also held countries, including Russia, accountable for hacking targets in the United States. I want to ask you about what's happening now with Russia as it pertains to cybersecurity, right? It's possible that Russia could invade Ukraine. The Department of Homeland Security said if there is a Russian invasion of Ukraine, that the United States needs to be prepared that Russia could launch a cyber attack if the United States gets involved.
1: That, that's right, and not only coming directly from Russia, but also Russia uses proxies, for example, or they will give a wink and a nod to say the the ransomware organizations that operate within Russia's borders, right now they're sort of acting with impunity. And Russia's kind of okay with that as long as you know when the, when the Russian state calls on them to, say, dial up their ransomware attacks against the United States and keep us busy and occupied and tied down over here, so that you know we're distracted and not paying attention to what's going on in Ukraine. I can see that you know happening. So we need to be ready for the blowback. We need to be uh, resilient.
0: Cyber criminals in Russia haven't been shy about launching cyber attacks against the United States. In 2021, Colonial Pipeline fell prey to a ransomware attack which led to gas shortages. That same year, hackers struck food supply chains, shutting down the meat processing plants of industry giant JBS. What's at stake if Russia does launch a cyber attack?
1: Well, it could take any different form, you know, anything from something like more ransomware attacks to something that's more significant if they choose to. I mean, Russia has significant cyber capabilities, as do we. They know that, we know that. We have the right tools to carry out. Uh, strong and, and, and devastating cyber attacks of our of our own we hope that none of that comes up. we don't want to see it escalate
0: the congressman isn't just known for his expertise on cyber issues he's also passionate about the rights of people with
1: disabilities the journal stands approved
0: in 2010, on the 20th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Langevin became the first person in a wheelchair to preside over the House of Representatives.
1: That was a pretty exciting moment, I have to say. What a, what a privilege and an honor uh, that was. It's a memory that's, you know, seared in my mind.
0: Langevin is the first quadriplegic to serve in Congress. He was 16 years old when his life was forever changed. He says he was then forced to dream a new dream.
1: I was involved in a police cadet program in a local police department here in, in my hometown of Warwick. And I fell in love with, with police work. And I thought that was going to be my career path, law enforcement, police officer, maybe FBI uh, at some point. Um, but as often you know, can happen, life can change on a dime. I, I walked into the locker room one day, getting ready to go on my shift, getting my uniform, and, and, uh, and talking to a couple of police officers. And uh, they were looking at a new weapon that one of them had just purchased, and the the officer pulled the trigger to test it. Didn't realize there was a bullet already in the in the pipe of the of the gun, and uh, he pulled the trigger, and the bullet ricocheted and, and then went through my neck and severed my spinal cord.
0: Do you think about that day often?
1: It definitely crops up, you know, even today. You know, I you know I think back on it and sometimes. It happens less and less frequently over, over the years, obviously. But you know, the, the, they all still have frustrating days sometimes where, you know, uh, things take too long or it's you know, uh, you know, you wish things maybe were, were different. But you know, uh, this is reality, and I've adapted and and I say you know, no good dwelling on uh, the past or what you know what could have been
0: because you don't strike me as a resentful, bitter person.
1: No, I'm not, and that's the one thing I'm very grateful for. You know, this is where God's grace comes in, and that, uh, of all the things, uh, I was never angry, frustrated maybe, you know, and certainly and sort of sad and disappointed at the loss. I've often described it as like going through a death, uh, and that the life that I knew before, that I'd never know again. But um, I was very, you know, very fortunate that for whatever reason, and I'm grateful for that, and that in and of itself is a blessing, is a gift. You know that I wasn't angry because I think anger can be all-consuming and it, it holds you back. And I probably would not have done as well as I have if I was looking backwards and always being angry.
0: langevin credits his Catholic faith with helping him move forward. He took office as a pro-life Democrat. But in 2021, he faced backlash when he announced he'd support legislation that codifies abortion rights in federal law, despite being personally opposed to abortion.
1: I've been really troubled and disappointed by what I've seen across the country, by right-wing legislators and legislatures that are trying to weaponize the abortion issue. I look at the the Texas law that attempts to turn uh, people into vigilantes and reporting their neighbors and and things like that. And now with that on the the verge of the Supreme Court, on the verge I believe of overturning Roe versus Wade, it's gonna further divide and and fray the fabric of the country and I think that's unfortunate. Um, Though my personal views haven't changed, I've come to the conclusion that as a matter of public policy, I don't think that the government should be involved in a very personal decision or, or issues between a woman and her doctor. And at the end of the day, I believe we we have to trust women.
0: Langevin's decision not to seek re-election comes as Democrats prepare to potentially lose their already slim majority in the House during the midterm elections.
1: I think it's still too early to determine who is going to be in control of Congress after the elections in November. I still think it's possible that the Democrats can maintain uh, majorities in the House and the Senate if people are focusing on what Democrats have been able to accomplish so far, or is
0: it possible that Congressman Langevin will appear on the ticket again in a few years? I would
1: say you never say never. I don't have any immediate plans to, to do that, but uh, again, I've uh, been involved in elective office for, for many years, and you know, I never say never, but no plans to, to run for any office. I won't be on the ballot uh, this coming November, but you know, who knows what the future holds. Uh, I still have a year to go in, in this job. And that will be my primary focus.
0: And what do you hope your legacy will be? As people talk about you 10, 15 years from now, what do you want them to say about Congressman Langevin and his time in office?
1: Well, hopefully that I made a difference, made people's lives better. Uh, but also that uh, not to let challenges get in your way. I believe in education is the great equalizer. If you, if you want something bad enough, believe in yourself and don't let anything get in your way. We're all capable of accomplishing great things if we, if we try.
2: Aside from spending time with loved ones, Congressman Langevin says he's not sure what he's going to do after he leaves Congress. Several people have announced they're running for Langevin's seat. As for who he plans to support, he says it's too early to think of an endorsement. We turn now to a story about food insecurity. Rising food prices caused by inflation, supply chain shortages, and other pandemic-related issues are affecting everyone. In the last year, grocery costs have risen more than 6%. The price of beef has jumped even more, rising nearly 20%. Those already struggling to buy food before the pandemic have been hit the hardest, including one group which may shock you. More than one in three college students in the U.S. face food insecurity. This means almost 27,000 students in Rhode Island don't know where their next meal is coming from. No college or university is immune to the problem. We found one working on a solution.
4: How does it feel to be hungry? That pretty much is like a case by case basis, but for me it was sort of like, okay, am I doing something wrong?
2: After a series of dead-end jobs, Derek Sherlock decided going to college was the best chance to get ahead. While in school, Sherlock worked part-time jobs but often didn't have enough money for food.
4: How am I supposed to survive when, you know, I'm going into a class and my stomach is rumbling like, you know, you know there's like a severe thunderstorm coming.
2: And Sherlock's situation is not uncommon. Among students in four-year institutions, the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice found nearly half of black students, 42% of Latinx students, and a third of white students face food insecurity. At two-year institutions, those numbers are even higher
5: and a lot of our students, as well as myself, um, when we were in the PK to 12 system, we were relying on the, the free lunch at school and things like that, so when all of a sudden that's gone, what are you, what are you kind of depending on? When people think, oh, college students are all good, they're, they're able to kind of pay for things as they go, not necessarily the case.
2: Latanya Montero is the Educational Support Coordinator at Learning for Life, an office at Rhode Island College, she connects Rick students to a network of resources to serve their academic, mental health, social support, and basic needs. Needs that sometimes have to be put on the back burner.
6: Unfortunately, sometimes you get to a point where you're prioritizing like, I need to buy this textbook for class versus like, I need to eat today.
2: Faith Busher is the graduate assistant at the Food for Thought pantry at RIC She says she has spoken with students who face numerous obstacles, including one who was living
6: in their car. They're coming to school, they're coming to class, they're getting their grades, but they don't have a home. Um, And, you know, they do have that struggle with food insecurity as well. So they have the housing insecurity and the food insecurity. Yes, they do have education, but it's almost like, you know, What else can you do to, like, get yourself to a better place? Unfortunately, that is the call that students sometimes have to make, is that I know I'm in a bad spot. I need to be able to help support my family, help support myself. But sometimes getting that education is how you get there.
3: When I was an undergraduate student here at RIC, I also faced food insecurity and there were times where I was sitting in class trying to decide, I have five dollars, what do I do? Do I pump gas so that I have enough gas to go pick up my brother when I get out of classes? Or do I buy a snack because I'm super hungry and I'm sure everybody can hear my stomach grumbling, right? And those are decisions that I made often. There were times where I did use the money to get a snack and then my money got stuck, my snack got stuck in the vending machine. <laughs> so it was, I and laugh now, but it would almost bring me to tears in those moments because that was all I had left and I was choosing to use it for food. I, I read your message, but well, we can talk about that
2: Joyce Garzon is the director of Learning for Life.
3: She says the demographics of the students they serve are diverse. We have about 30% of the students that we serve that are adult learners. We also have 55% of the students that we serve that are Pell eligible. 94% of the students that we serve are Rhode Island residents. And 63% of the students that we serve identify as people of color.
5: Unbeknownst to most of the college community, the students that we work with, the GPAs are above a 3.0. So it's not the students that are failing that are coming to look for services uh, for us. It's those who are doing well, they just need a little bit of help.
2: These students come to Learning for Life to get that help. The program assists with many of the challenges students face in school and in life. In the last few years, the program has expanded to include assistance with acquiring food, That's because in 2019, Rick conducted a campus climate survey and asked about food insecurity.
3: There were 953 respondents that answered that question. And there were 33% of the respondents shared that they had experienced some financial hardship, specifically obtaining food.
2: What started as a small snack pantry has expanded to a few shelves within the Adams Library. During the fall semester of 2021 they distributed more than 700 pounds of food. Students stop by between classes to get snacks and often take food home too.
4: They've got a can of you know mixed vegetables. I can you know you know I can find a can opener, open it up, and put it on a plate throw it in a microwave and there's my dinner or there's my lunch. College students
2: facing food insecurity have few options outside of food pantries the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, known as SNAP, can offer some help.
3: Although it's not necessarily a long-term solution, it's something that can help them get through, and it can certainly help a college student get through to graduation or get through the semester. So I I just feel like one of the important things that we should look at is how uh, difficult that process may be for folks, or what are the barriers that get in the way for people to access that resource.
2: It's estimated only four out of 10 students who are eligible for SNAP benefits are receiving them. That leaves approximately 4,000 who would qualify, but are not getting assistance. Currently, 2,500 college students in the state obtain food through SNAP.
4: For me particularly, SNAP helped me be able to survive.
2: For those who receive SNAP benefits, there are limitations. SNAP can't be used to pay for prepared meals, including in college cafeterias. Students who receive more than half their meals from a school meal plan can't access SNAP. Although it became a lifesaver, the first time Sherlock used SNAP benefits...
4: I kind of felt a little bit ashamed because because of the stigma that, you know, oh, people who use SNAP are just, you know, leeching off of the system.
2: Most, if not all, higher education institutions throughout Rhode Island have programs aimed at alleviating food insecurity. Brown University has a student-run community-supported agriculture program connecting local farmers to students, employees and area residents. They can come to campus and pick up fresh produce, coffee, bread, dairy products and more on Thursdays during the school year. Members who pay for full priced shares help subsidize those who can't afford to pay full price. The Learning for Life team at RIC is hoping to expand their pantry into a larger space with a refrigerator so they can provide students with healthier items such as produce. But even longer term, people like Montero hope there won't be a need for a food pantry at all.
5: I would like to work myself out of a job. Um, but. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, if we could continue to make sure that the pantry stays um, vibrant and consistent and we have fresh options, because I think that having canned foods all the time or microwavable mac and cheese all the time or anything like that, that might get you through for right now, but it's not necessarily healthy.
2: For now, the Learning for Life team is doing everything they can to make sure students at RIC get fed so they can focus on school and graduate like Sherlock.
4: I can safely say without the food pantry, I don't think I would have been able to focus as much in my college career. I probably would have been focusing more on, you know, all right, where am I going to get my next meal?
0: Derek Sherlock graduated from Rhode Island College in 2020 and is now working in the nonprofit sector in the Ocean State. Finally tonight, we asked guest commentator Lila Alphonse to continue the discussion about food insecurity here in
7: Rhode Island and beyond. We know about the freshman 15, those extra pounds students gain by gorging on pizza and beer during their first year of college. But for far too many students around the country and right here in Rhode Island, gaining weight isn't the problem. Going hungry is. This is an issue that brings back uncomfortable memories. I graduated from Syracuse University in the early 1990s, working full-time at the city's morning newspaper while I was still a full-time student. There were nights when I had to choose between bus fare to and from work or buying dinner. I often walked the two and a half miles home by myself long after midnight so I could afford food the next day. And I was one of the lucky ones. It's 30 years later, but still, every day, there are students at colleges and universities who are dealing with food insecurity, on top of the stress of classes, tests, and tuition. The problem is bigger than supply chain issues and rising grocery prices. The fact that so many people are shocked that so many students are struggling goes to show that we're not doing enough to solve a very real problem. As mentioned in the report you've just seen, a recent survey by Temple University's Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice found that 29% of students at four-year colleges and 39% of students at two-year colleges faced food insecurity in 2020. Many worried that their food would run out before they could get money to buy more. Some skipped meals because they couldn't afford enough food. More than half of them didn't seek assistance because they didn't know where to turn. That makes the problem even worse. Not knowing that there are resources available means that the real number of students who are going hungry every day is likely far higher. Students shouldn't have to seek out off-campus resources or government assistance. Food pantries can be difficult to get to if you don't have transportation. Basic ingredients are great, but only if you have a kitchen to cook them in. People can be food insecure but not qualify for government assistance, and those who do may discover that their benefits don't work in snack bars or dining halls. Every college and university should have a program in place on campus for students who need help covering their basic needs. There are plenty of hurdles for students to face as they make their way through college. Not having enough to eat shouldn't be one of them.
2: Our thanks to Lila Alphonse. And that's our broadcast for this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts.
0: I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly.